Here we go. You know what time it is. It's another episode of Sports Life Balance. So I put my headphones on. I was dancing around. And all of a sudden, something hit me in the back of my head. And I, and I looked inward, and I watched myself jump. And it was as if God had said, on your next jump, you're going to break the world record. I truly felt that God had, had said, I'm going to get this blessing. There was no doubt in my mind. So I ran down. I took a hop, a skip, and a jump. And I landed right next to where the world record marker was. And they said, world record. I said, yes, I know. <laughs> Meet Willie Banks, three-time Olympian, legendary triple jumper, and yes, former world record holder. I'm John Moffat, and thanks for joining Willie and me on another episode of Sports Life Balance. Willie loves to jump. He always has. And growing up, he parlayed his abounding energy and natural ability into a full scholarship at UCLA. And in between making Olympic teams and breaking world records, Willie also became a lawyer. His crowd-pleasing charisma made him an international star. And after his athletic career, Willie's infectious enthusiasm and passion for athletes' rights led him to a lifelong career as a leader within the Olympic and Paralympic movements. I can't wait for you to hear Willie's stories as a sports ambassador, innovator, entertainer, and one last thing, he's still breaking world records at 65 years old. Well, I think we should get going. What do you think, Willie? I'm into it. Anytime. All right. Well, sounds good. Well, thank you so much for opening up your beautiful home down here in Carlsbad, California, which is just north of San Diego. Um, I, I find that it's so much better speaking to somebody in person, especially after all the ordeals over the past uh, year and a half or two years. So thank you for opening up your home. Well, thank you. No, I'm thankful that you'd come. I, uh, I, one of the things that I love to do is host people at my house. And, uh, you know, this area here is so comfortable. I just, I really love the atmosphere in North, North San Diego and Carlsbad, uh, is special to me. It's right next door to my hometown of Oceanside. So, Hey, I just came back home and I'm loving it. Yeah, you mentioned that it's not. This isn't very far from uh, where you grew up. Um, describe what you were like to me as as a kid. I was I was pretty crazy. When I look back on it, I think that I was f so fortunate to have parents who were patient but uh, very firm with me. Mm -hmm. I learned so much from my father, who was a Marine. And he had discipline, and he was uh, he was quiet, hmm. uh, very strong, very you know someone you wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley, right? <laughs> but uh, you know I loved him and respected him very very much. My mother, on the other hand, she was always excited, and she was so loving, and and I had two brothers and two sisters, and we all just cling to her like she was, uh, you know, heaven on earth. So, uh, again, I was fortunate. Now, that led to me being a little bit uh, wild and crazy. Uh, it wasn't that I was doing things bad. I just had so much energy. Mm. In fact, my parents uh, were so worried because I was jumping around on furniture and jumping off of buildings and things like that. Seriously, you know, we had these Quonset huts and I would get on the top and I would jump off. And they thought, what is wrong with this kid? Is he... <laughs> so they sent me to a psychiatrist, 
that one of the school psychiatrists at the school I was going to at the time in Barstow, California, and put me through a battery of tests and uh, eventually told my parents that, you know, there's nothing really wrong with him. It's just that he's so full of energy. You just Mm -hmm. have to get that energy out. So he suggested that they put me in sports. Oh. And I, you know, my, again, my, my blessing, my father was a Marine and on the Marine base, you could do everything for free. Baseball, horseback riding, soccer, golf, tennis. And I did it all. My parents every day, hey, you're going to go play soccer today. Hey, (laughs) you're going to go do baseball. Hey, and you know, I calmed down, and and pretty soon I was a much better kid, uh-huh. a much better student, because I didn't have all this energy I was yeah. trying to get rid of. I guess today they'd probably say I had ADD, but in those days it was just hyperactive, and and I think it's better that they put me in sports than to give me a bunch of drugs. Yeah, I think that um, there is a commonality amongst the athletes that I've spoken with on the podcast is that there's um. Uh, sports at, at least in the early stages is an antidote to something else. Like for me, it was an escape. It was my place where I could just be alone and at peace. Cause you know, when it's a swimmer, you, it's like a, you know, you're kind of immersed oh my from, God. yeah. Yeah. Swimmers. I always wondered, man, that black line, does it become a little wavy at times? Cause for me, I would go nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you have to be a little nuts. To get... <laughs> <laughs> I was the exact opposite. I went to sports because that's where my friends were. I wanted to be with people. I wanted to be able to bounce off of people. And uh, when my, I did swimming mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I, I started looking at that black line and it just got too much for me. And I said, you know, mom, dad, that was fun. But I don't think this is for me. I totally understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned something very early on that you like to jump and jump off Quonset huts oh, and jump and yeah. jump and jump. So, when's this jumping thing, when did this jumping thing really take hold for you? When I was a little kid. I tell you, it got so, so bad that, you know, my friends and I, we built like these high, this high jump uh, set. We we put two, you know, two by fours on the side, put nails on the side of it. And then we, we had a bamboo pole and we put on the, the nails and go up higher and higher. And then we got two mattresses and put it on the, you know, next to it. And we started doing a high jump. Now, we weren't too bright. So we actually had the, we actually had the pole on the wrong, the, 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 the crossbar on the wrong side. And so I jumped at it and it all collapsed on me and I got a big scar on my face. So, you know, hey, but I kept going because I just loved jumping. And I would run straight at the thing and just jump up and over. It was so much fun. Well, how did you discover triple jump then? How did that? Well, that's kind of a long story. I don't think we have enough time for that story. I'll try and cut it short. But anyway, when I was, uh, as I was saying, we, we set up our own high jump. And yeah. so I actually started out as a high jumper. And I, <clears throat> I really... It wasn't until I got into junior high that I kind of took things seriously in terms of of what jump of track and field because I didn't really know what track and field was. But my friend took me to, uh, I guess when we were in sixth grade, took me to a track meet at the high school. And it was uh, Boys and Girls Club track meet. 
And I just entered into these things and, you know, the 50-yard dash, the high jump, the long jump. And I, I think I took two seconds and a third and I was in. Wow. I was sold. You just like the competition? I just loved everything about it. The, the competition, my friends were there, people were clapping for me. Are you kidding? All you have to do is clap for me and I'll do anything. <laughs> so one day uh, I was in junior high in seventh grade and they had, uh, you know, the, the PE teacher said, we're going to have a little, you know, a track meet and we want you guys to get ready. And he brought down a student from the high school and we all sat down to listen to him talk about his experience as a high jumper at the high school. And he, I, I saw this guy, I was like, this guy is amazing. And he showed me how high he was jumping. I said, that's impossible. So um, I went up to the high school to see the high school track meet with him in it. And when I got there, you know, my parents just dropped me off. They're like, okay, go kid. Um, I went there and they started the track meet and they started the high jump and people were jumping and jumping and he was nowhere to be found. And I was like, what is going on? So I'm watching and it gets to about six feet and everybody goes out. And I'm like, huh, I came all the way up here and he doesn't even jump. So then I look to the left and there he was sitting on the ground and the official walks over to him, is talking to him, says, you know, well, how high do you want to put it up? Oh. And I'm like, Holy, he's going to start now? That's amazing. Everybody else is out. So I think he, he put it up to like 6'3 or 6'4. And he just, without taking off his sweats, he jumped it like, wow. I'm practicing. I said, I want to be that guy. I want to be the guy that after everybody's out, I step up and I'm like, step away because the master is about to get busy. Here. <laughs> and... He did it. He went almost seven feet that day. And oh I was like, gosh. this guy is brilliant. He later, um, uh, his, his name was Jerry Culp. Okay. And he later became the, or he might even still be, the assistant uh, athletic director for USC. Really? And I had no idea. And one day I, I, I was over there getting some kind of award. And he, they, they started talking to about Jerry Culp. And I was like, wait a minute. That's the guy who got me into this sport. <laughs> and they point to him. And I'm like, you're the man. You're the guy. You're the one. So, you know, you never know what, as an athlete, you never know who you're going to inspire and who's going to aspire to be like you. And that's what Jerry Culp did to me. And from that day on, I said, you know, I want to be like that. I want to be the kind of guy that inspires people because this this is special. There's nothing better than to be an athlete and to enjoy running, jumping, swimming, throwing, whatever it is, and being good at it. So that's what I did. Well, it, it's, Oh, I never got know. into the triple jump part. I forgot about yeah, that yeah, because well, I was so was excited my, about it. That was my follow-up. Uh, okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so anyway... Uh, I became a high jumper and then a long jumper and a hurdler in high school. And I was pretty good. My sophomore year, I made the state meet in the long jump. Uh -huh. And I thought, man, I am getting there. I'm finally getting somewhere. And then my junior year in high school, they introduced the triple jump to the California Interscholastic Federation. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what it was. 
And I thought, okay. So they made everyone try it. And at the time, I was coming out of basketball, which was my favorite sport. Right. And uh, someone had stolen my shoes. Look, I'm from Oceanside, so you know, theft was just part of being there, right? <laughs> and someone stole my, my regular running shoes, so I had my dad's basketball shoes. I ran out, and they said, let's do this triple jump. And they, they kind of showed you how to do it. And I did the hop, skip, and a jump, mm. which was a long hop, a real short jump and a long you know, uh, a little uh, short step and then a, a long uh, jump. And that was the triple jump. And I, and at that day, you know, I was the best. And so uh, the high school coach said, okay, we're going to have you do the triple jump. And I was like, okay, great. So I went to my history class. And in the class, his, his name was um, Mr. Cunningham. And his son was the basketball coach. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he was he was saying he he was talking to me and he said, hey, Willie, so what are you doing now? I said, well, now I'm a triple jumper. <sighs> and he said, oh, wow. Well, that's great. I used to do that. Maybe I'll come out and help you. And I looked at him like, wait a minute. Uh, you know, I'm the best in the school. I, how can you help me? Right? And he's like, no, 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 I was, I was pretty good when I was younger. And I go, what are you, about a million years old? Right. No, um, but he said, you know, in the 42 and through 44, he was the NC2A champion. He was oh. the national champion. So he'll come out and he'll show me. And I go, okay, okay. If you're that good, then maybe you can tell me a few things. So we went out and he showed me it's not long, short, long. It's even. Even, even each phase has to be the same distance. Mm. And I was like, oh. So I did what he asked me to do. And I did. I improved. In fact, I improved so much that uh, I went to one school and almost jumped out of the pit. I would have jumped out of the pit, but I stopped. And so they had to dig another six feet to every pit, pit in my league because Dang. had I jumped out and gotten hurt, lawsuit yeah right so they dug out the pits made it you know longer so that i could jump into the this uh to the sand rather than onto the grass or onto the pavement so that was uh my introduction to the triple jump in that same year my junior year when i first started i won the state meet mm. and wow. uh the next year i won a state meet i was undefeated until um one guy beat me in chicago i couldn't jump against the wind i was about a six two 140 pounds or mm. something like mm -hmm. that. And so jumping into win was just not my specialty. But I later came back and was able to beat him. Well, yeah, um, that's another key component to athletes is that at some point they discover that they A, enjoy it or good or both. And you were uh, clearly good enough to be able to earn a full scholarship to UCLA. Yay. Yay. Go Bruins. Yeah. <laughs> um. And if I have the math correctly, um, I believe the summer of your senior year is when you went to the 1976 Olympic trials. So is that right? Let's see. So my, yeah, I think I was a sophomore. I had already jumped a national uh, national record, national okay. collegiate record, 55 feet one. And so, yeah, I went uh, and I actually thought, you know, hey, I'm going to win this. Right. Deal. But um, 
unfortunately, um, I I thought I was going to make the 76 team, and yeah. I was in good position to make the 76 team. But unfortunately, uh, Rayfield Dupree came down on his last jump and beat me by an inch. Oh, and so I was fourth, an alternate, quote unquote. Right. And so I sat at home and watched on television. Mm -hmm. My parents, my sisters and brothers, they went to Montreal. Oh, gosh. I know. So I was the only one well, in England. That's insult to injury. I'm telling you. I mean, my parents, I told my parents I was going to make a team, so they believed me. So mm. my father actually went out and took a loan on the house so he could purchase a, a better car and a... Uh, uh, a motorhome, you know, a, a trailer, I guess right, they call it. Right, right. Uh, so that they could go and, and, and watch the games in Montreal. <sighs> so they drove out there and had a ball, and I was at home watching it kind of on television and not being very happy, but mm -hmm. swore I'd make the team in 80, and you know that what happened mm -hmm. there. I made mm -hmm. the team. I was the best, you know, by a foot. Right. And, oh, well, we boycotted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you were having a good few years leading up. Too. Yep. I mean, yeah. you're like, okay, you were probably, you, you had some redemption in you from your experience as oh, yeah. getting fourth at the trials, which by the way, one place out of the trial out, you know, make missing the Olympic team by one place at the trials is in absolutely excruciatingly painful. The worst and, position you can be in, in sport. Right. <clears throat> so you had, had plenty of um, motivation leading um, to 1980. And then you and I, of course, both know, but perhaps there's a friendly reminder to the listeners what happened to all of us who were uh, named to the 1980 U.S. Summer Olympic team. Absolutely. So uh, we were named to the, the team, but the IOC does not recognize us yep. as Olympians, although the United States Olympic and Paralympic Asso uh, 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 Committee, I'm sorry, they do recognize us mm -hmm. as as olympians so there's a little bit of a rub there um i understand their position but it is it's quite painful to all of us to have to go and um deal with with the fact that we were great we were a great team a very strong team and it's just unfortunate that our government uh, decided to use us as pawns in a in a in a political game which was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan <laughs> at the end of 1979. That is correct. Yeah, I remember, I, I, of course, all of us remember acutely kind of that feeling. Um, is, this, is this kind of um, a point at which you started to develop your strong sense of, I want to represent athletes, I want I want to be part of creating something where athletes don't have to go through this again. Absolutely. I was furious. And um, Anita de France, our current IOC uh, member from the United States, uh, she, she had organized athletes mm -hmm. to protest the boycott. And I joined that, that protest. Um, I was doing everything I could to try and, and overturn something that was never overturned. Right. So, yeah, that then got me very, very excited about getting more involved in the governance of sport 
and getting more involved in helping athletes um, uh, better take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. So uh, I specifically got more involved with track and field. I became a a representative in track and field. Mm-hmm. Um, I also helped write um, what we call the trust fund um, legislation in track and field. So oh. in track, you could actually make under the table money. Right. You know, you would, they, they were appearance fees that you would earn. And uh, so, but that was a little bit shady. So what we decided to do, because they had this whole idea of amateurism, we wanted to, we wanted to end amateurism because it wasn't making much sense. Mm-hmm. So in order to get there, we had to first develop legislation that was going to allow us to make money on our talent, but not make us pros. So we created a trust fund um, um, trust. Mm. so that any monies we made went into the trust fund. Then that trust fund could be used for uh, expenses for athletics. Well, it, it, it started to grow, and you know, then all of a sudden it was like, well, I need a car to get there, mm-hmm. and this Mercedes-Benz is the only car <laughs> that can get me there. You know? Right, right. Uh, so it, it really became uh, a, a trust fund but this trust fund could have millions of dollars in it. Mm. So it was starting to get a little bit crazy. Yeah. And eventually, uh, the Olympic movement did away with the whole idea of amateur versus pro, especially when you were seeing athletes who worked for their quote-unquote military in their country uh, making tons of money, and, and we as quote-unquote amateurs were not. Right. And it was a little bit unfair. So they did away with the whole idea of amateurism amateurism at that time and i'd like to think that uh, i along with people like david greifinger who was a buddy went to ucla with me helped move that along quicker in 1981 you really kind of started to make a name for yourself (laughs) outside of just your your athletic prowess in the triple jump um stockholm 1981 uh, you can't Google Willie Banks without this this story coming up, but I'd love to hear from your perspective the story of the rhythmic clapping. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it because I love to to tell the story. It's it is um, really a story of, uh, of of a blessing that came to me out of nowhere. So it was very synergistic in all it, the way it happened. And I think I always tell people that being an athlete is, yeah, is a lot of work, but also there's some some luck or some blessings, as I call them, that mm-hmm. comes along with it. And those who are blessed are the ones who tend to be the most successful. They put in a lot of hard work to earn that blessing, mm-hmm. but the blessing is there. So I was at the top of my game in 1981. I was the best in the world. And I had just set a national record in the triple jump at the national championships. And I thought, boy, I am going to get paid. (laughs) So (laughs) I went over to Europe where we all would go. 
and you'd go from meet to meet and you would make appearance fees. And I was making, I don't know, somewhere between $200 to maybe $1,000 if I was lucky, right? And I was like, wow, <laughs> oh, yay, I get to buy a car. And you know, I started <laughs> dreaming of, of what I was going to be able to do. So I went over and I had a manager. His name was Pete Peterson. And old Pete went over with me and he went into the room where all the meat organizers are and and they reserve spots for mm-hmm. each athlete who were going to compete in their competitions. So uh, the first one was Stockholm and I'd already gotten that one. So Pete went in the room to get the rest for the rest of the year or at least for the rest of the summer. And when he came out, he looked at me and he said, so, Willie, I've got uh, good news and I got bad news. And I said, well, give me the bad news first. So he said, well, this will be your last triple jump. Uh, we're, they're not having the triple jump this summer. And I said, what? What are you talking about? I just set a national record. He said, I don't know. They're just not having the triple jump. I said, so what is the good news? He said, well, I got you a long, long jump competition in uh, Lausanne after this. And I said, long jump? I haven't long jumped in five or six <laughs> years. What are you talking about? He says, well, that's the best I could do. So I was angry. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I, when you get crazy like me, if you're crazy like me, what you're going to do is you're just going to walk in the room, even <laughs> if they say you're not allowed, and you're going to find out why. Yeah. So I did. I walked into the room. I walked up to the biggest meat promoter. He had six meats. And I said, hey, I understand you're not having the triple jump this year. What's going on? And he looked at me. He was an old uh, Bobby, a, a, a London police mm, officer. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me with this stern face and big guy. And he said, listen here, you. Why would I put on a triple jump? Nobody is coming to attract me to watch the triple jump. Now, if no one comes to watch the triple jump, I'm not getting paid. Mm. And if I'm not getting paid, I'm damn sure not going to pay you. Mm. Get the hell out of here. And I was just like, holy mackerel. A light went off. And I said, he's right. Oh, I was depressed. Yeah. I didn't know what to do at that time. So I went back to my room and laid down. I thought about it. And, you know, I I still had this hyperaction activity about me from when I was young. And I had to get rid of that energy that was just flowing through me. And I went downstairs to, the, to, to, to talk to some of the guys. And I said, hey, man, they're not having the triple jump this year anywhere. What are we going to do? And one guy lit up a cigarette right in front of me and started talking. And, you know, back then, you know, yeah. you were like, smoking a cigarette? What are you doing? <laughs> so I said, okay, f- forget it. So I thought, okay, I got to do this on my own. So I went to the stadium early no one in the stands and i just started warming up because i had all this pent-up energy yeah and i i i finally people started coming and i kept warming up and warming up and listening to this music that i had pre-recorded on a walkman you know for those of you who don't know what a walkman is it's a <laughs> it's it's like uh you know an ipod with a cassette in it, and I just recorded music onto the cassette and then used the Walkman. Anyway, <laughs> my point is I, I recorded this one guitar instrumental 
over and over, and it was called Not Just Knee Deep by Parliament Funkadelic. <laughs> and it was just so awesome for me. So I listened to this, and I just kept bouncing and, and stretching and going through the motions until the, meets, until the triple jump started. Once the triple jump started, they always bring you together. The judge mm-hmm. brings all the athletes together to give us instructions. After they've given us instructions, I said, hey, wait a minute, guys. Before you go, we have got to do something special today. They don't think the triple jump's very interesting. We've got to do something that makes people want to watch the triple jump. So we're going to break records. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to break national records, personal records. We're going to break a world record today. People looked at me and just turned and walked away. I thought maybe they don't speak English. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I was, I was, I said, okay, if that's if it's gonna be up to me, then I'm just gonna do my thing. So, um, they all the first the first probably eight guys fouled. It was so boring. I was about to slip my wrist. Uh. But I said, you know what? I'm gonna jump far. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna show them how exciting it is to jump far. So I stood, to, I took my sweats off and I go through my regular routine, which is I clap three times, I shake my fist three times, and then I run. So I clap my fist three times, and to my right, there was like five guys. They must have been drunk. I mean, mm-hmm. this was Sweden, and you can drink in the stands. They mm-hmm. were drinking beers. And they clap three times. And I was like, oh, gosh, it kind of threw me off. I don't know why, but it threw me off. So I looked over, and I was like, oh, shook my head back and forth like this is stupid. And I clapped three times. They clapped three times. I shook my fist, and I ran. And I jumped uh, fifty, about 54.8, which is about, I don't know, four inches below the Swedish record. Oh, okay. And so I came back, and they were, like, clapping for me. And I said, thank you. So this this five guys. They were just right there. The stands were full, but it was only these five guys. So I put my headphones on. I started listening to this music and dancing as usual. Foul, foul, foul. All these guys fouling and boring. I was, uh-huh. ugh. So I got up when it was my turn, and I took my sweats off. And just as I got ready to start my three claps, these five guys started clapping. And so I looked over and I put my thumbs up and I clapped three times, shook my fist three times, and I went. So that was my second jump and I, I jumped the Swedish record. So I was like, oh, got their attention. pretty good, yeah. So then the next time I got up, the whole, this whole side of the stands where I was jumping started clapping. And I ran down and I jumped even further. So I was jumping further and further. So on my fourth jump, I, I, I jumped really well, and probably half the stadium was clapping. The far side didn't know what was going on. So then I thought, you know what? I need to put some markers so people knew how far I had to jump. So I ran over to the meet organizer and I said, listen, I need three flags. He said, why do you need three flags? I need one at the Swedish record, one at the European record, and one at the world record. And he said, I got you. Uh So he put the flags out there. So on my fifth, which was my second to the last jump, my fifth jump, I decided 
I'm going to try and break the world record on this one. Mm. So I stood up, and now everybody started clapping. The whole stadium. The whole stadium. And they were just sitting there just clapping like this. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And I stood there, and I did my three claps. I shook my fist, and I ran, and I hopped. And I skipped and I jumped right at the world record flag and I jump up, my arms like spread up above my head like, you know, I did it, victory. Well, I kind of felt the board and I felt like, ooh, I probably fouled big time on this one. <laughs> but when I turned around and looked, the guy holding the flag, he was shaking. His hand was shaking. It was holding the red flag, which means I fouled. fouled, yeah. And the people were, you know, in Europe, they whistle, this shrill whistle when they are booing. Booing is whistling there. And everybody's booing at this. You know, there's no way. And I'm like, you know, I figure I'm going to go with it. No, I didn't, knowing, you know, of course. So I ran over, and he wanted to show me the mark. And I got on my hands and knees. Of course, you could have seen the foul by, you know, from Mars. It was that <laughs> that bad and i looked at him and i was like you know sheepishly i looked at him i said yeah you caught me and he was so relieved thinking i was gonna argue the fact but i was like you know what the heck i ran back i waved to the crowd and everybody started clapping yeah. and laughing and then you know i thought to myself i'll put my headphones on and i'm gonna do something that i watch runners do but i never see field defenders do and that is after they do their race, they'll run around the track and people like cheer for them and throw stuff the at them, lap. flowers, a victory lap. Yeah. <laughs> now I had, I still had one more jump, right? Oh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> but I thought, you know, I'm taking my lap because no one was going to beat me. So I put it and I slowly jogging around the track and every section I came to, they would clap, they would stand up and sit down. That was the first wave I'd ever seen in track and field. Oh, that's great. And I was like, whoa, that was awesome. So my last jump, I take off everything. I stand at the top, and the place was silent. And I put my hands out as if I'm preparing to clap. Mm -hmm. And I brought them together. Boom! And you just hear the thunder. Everybody's just... Hum, hum, hum. We'll return to Willie Banks in a minute, but first, let me tell you about our partners, ROCA. Their motto is field-tested, athlete-approved, and it's true. ROCA's founders are both fellow Stanford All-American swimmers, and they know their stuff. From the highest quality gear to top-performing sunglasses, take it from this athlete, me, there's nothing better on the market. Their entire line of eyewear is super lightweight, and they all come with adjustable and non-slip nose and temple pads. So they stay put on my face, even when I'm sweaty and working out. And they're so comfortable, I forget that I'm wearing them. They look great too. Roka has a vast selection of styles. And they have their exclusive home tryout program, where they'll send you your choice of four styles, you put them to the test, and then purchase your favorite. So go check them out. Head to roka.com, that's R-O-K-A.com, and enter code SLB, as in Sports Life Balance. That's three letters, S-L-B to save 20% on your first order. And that's for anything on their website. Enjoy. You're back listening to Sports Life Balance. And I put my hands out as if I'm preparing to clap. Mm -hmm. And I brought them together. Boom! And you just hear the thunder. Everybody's just... Hum, hum, hum. 
And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm standing on the tip tippy toes on my toenails. I'm standing because of the, just the excitement of the crowd had me like floating. And I just ran as fast as I could a hop, a step, a jump, almost got to the world record. (laughs) And there it was. I jumped, uh, I think that day I jumped like 57 feet seven, which was a half an inch off of my national record. And I jumped up and it was a European record. People came out of the stands. They grabbed me. They put me on their shoulders or walking (laughs) around. They made the same mistake you did by giving me a microphone and I'm going crazy, you know, talking. Yeah, you know, I don't even know what I said, but I was talking. And it was just pandemonium. And I'll never forget after it kind of died down, I walked over to where all the meat organizers were, and I walked up to that one guy, the big cop. His name was Andy Norman. And I looked at Andy, and I I took my knuckles, and I kind of rubbed them against my <laughs> chest, you know, like, and then blew on my fingers. <laughs> so what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> And I had, he said, you got me, you, you got me. So he set me up with so many meats. The guy was from then on, he was my angel everywhere. If I wanted to go somewhere, he negotiated the deals for me. Wow. I mean, and he got me top dollar, no matter what he's like, no, you're paying this guy. That's awesome. It was just unbelievable. Now, let me just tell you, you know, there was this one guy he used to end every radio broadcast with, and now the rest of the story so i'm just gonna go oh, to the rest, rest of the story? you have a rest okay. of the story you'll if you remember the beginning of this uh rant i'm talking about mm-hmm. uh pete came out and said i had good news and bad news and the good news was this long jump in lausanne right after the stockholm meet so i went down to lausanne and i was i hadn't jumped in such a long time and i wasn't a great jumper but you know i did it and I thought that was cool, you know, in Stockholm. That was my 15 minutes of fame. And nothing will ever happen after that. But I didn't care because I got some meats and I was going to make some money. So I was jumping about my second or third jump. I was like, this is not working. I was jumping like what I did in high school. So then someone in the, sta- in the audience said, well, come on, Willie. And I turned and I put my hands up like, what do you want? And all of a sudden... and i'm like holy crap where did this come from oh i forget people watch television there and i ran and i i jumped uh eight meters 11 which is i think it's like 26 feet eight inches was at the time was a big jump it was actually the swiss record and so you know once again everybody was like coming out and cheering (laughs) and i was like holy crap so i realized that this clap thing was not only kind of getting the people involved, but it helped me yeah. to be a better jumper. So from that day on, everywhere I went, no matter where, everybody, when it was my turn to clap, I mean, t- my turn to jump, mm-hmm. they would start clapping. And it just, no matter how I felt, no, how, no matter what kind of pain I had, everything melted away except for just having a blast jumping on the run. Wow, what a story. And it's... The clapping and variations of that clapping still are today. employed today. Yeah, that's 
That's my claim to fame. I gave track and field a clap. Uh. <laughs> 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 well, so you um, were sometime in this time going back to UCLA, this time, however, to pursue your law degree. Yes. So not only were you uh, studying to become a lawyer, but you were training. Yes. For 1984. Yes. And once correct. again, 19 wow. redemption from 1980. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I made the team, but I got injured, and I was only managed only managed to come in sixth, which was a little bit sad. And I went back mm-hmm. to my uh, went back to the room. I shared a room with a bunch of jumpers, you know, Dwight Stones and and um, and others. And I was like, you know what? I'm I'm out of here because it was L.A. and I lived in L.A. I just yeah. went. I didn't want to go to my apartment because I knew that people would uh, be calling and saying, "Oh, you know, I'm sad." I didn't want that. I wanted to be myself. So I went to the. I don't know if you know on Sunset Boulevard they had a a round hotel. It yeah, like it's still round. there. It's still there. Mm-hmm. And I checked into that hotel, and I just cried, mm-hmm. and I said to myself, I, I, "I was." I was talking to my Lord, you know, and I said, I, I don't know what to do now. It's like I've, 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 I've set up my whole life to, to win a gold medal in the Olympic Games. And I didn't think it was going to happen now, you know, because I had finished. And, and it's like God said, you know, what are you talking about? You're not done yet. There's so many more things you can do. And I thought, oh, gosh. But I didn't win the gold medal. It says, there is the world record. <laughs> mm. So I was like, oh, okay, that's a good idea. Okay. So so I, I checked out of the hotel the next day, and I went back to the stadium, and uh, I did some radio, and I had a ball. I, I had a good time. I may not be a gold medalist, but I knew at some point I would get an opportunity, and I was going to shoot for the world record. I saw a great interview that was done in 1984. Mm. Um and you talked about that you wanted to leave behind a legacy mm-hmm. back then. That's pretty amazing thinking about you know, where you are as an athlete and as a human in that state, that you were already thinking that way back then. What was, what was going into that? Well, you know, I have always been a person that, that, that loved people and really thought that community was important. I think I got that from my parents. Mm. They always said, you know, community is important. You have to take care of one another. You got two brothers and two sisters, and you got to take care of them. But then you've got an extended family, people that used to come to our house. Our house was always full of other people's kids. (laughs) And so I thought, you know what? I can't just live my life and just be me. I've got to share something with people. And, and I think that, that that led me to wanting to help others, mm-hmm. you know, as best I can, and to want to share with others the, the bounty that was given to me. We weren't rich at all, but right. I thought I was. I thought I was rich in that, I, you know, I had parents. I had family. No one was... No, no death at yeah. that time. It was just us. And then I had an, an, an enormous extended family of, of, of kids and other parents that took care of me. And I just said, this is way I thought everybody lived. 
Well, when I started traveling, I found out that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, we can do something about this. And as an, as, as an Olympian, I think I owe it to the world for the bounty that was given to me mm-hmm. to try and share that. I can't agree with you more. I appreciate all the work that you've been doing, but we'll get, we'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit. But you mentioned that world record, that mm-hmm. sort of um, um, the message in post-84 disappointment. Um, take me back to summer of 1985 in Indianapolis. Well, I was talking about community earlier, and I was I, I joined a, a group of, of athletes that were super athletes. They were just unbelievable, eventually becoming medalists and and world record holders themselves. <clears throat> and and we were all training together at Santa Monica College. Mm-hmm. And then when it came down to uh, the national championship that year, I knew I was in better shape than I had ever been in my life. And I had already had the national record. So I thought it's not going to be that hard to jump another, you know, seven inches or so to break a world record. And I felt that I could do it at sea level. The record prior to mine was done in Mexico City, which is high altitude, right. rarefied air. And where Bob Beeman exactly. broke his everlasting world record in the long jump. Yeah, Exactly. So my coach said, oh, we got to go to Mexico City. So I said, no, I'm not doing that. Mm. We're going to break this world record at sea level, and we're going to do it as soon as I can get into shape. And I was in shape, and I was so fast, so much faster. Uh that I knew I had a good chance. So I went to the national championship and at that national championship, I was jumping against some athletes that were just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. They had, you know, people like Al Joyner who won the gold medal in 84, Mm -hmm. Mike Conley, who took the silver, just a, a slew of great athletes. And we started out and it was nice and warm. I like it. I like it hot. Mm hmm. Ah, man, when it's hot, my body just turns into, I don't know, a fighting machine. So once we started uh, the competition, my first jump, I ran down, felt great. I took a hop, a skip, a jump, and I fouled slightly. Mm. And when I came back, I was like, oh, (laughs) I'm ready. I'm ready. So I put my headphones on. I was dancing around. And all of a sudden, something hit me in the back of my head. And I... And I looked inward and I watched myself jump. And it was as if God had said, on your next jump, you're going to break the world record. And I was like, shock, wow. right? Wow. My, I, my eyes opened big and my mouth opened wide. And I was like, oh, no, here it comes. So I ran over to a, a UCLA high jumper um, and... He, he, and I told him, I said, you know what? I'm going to break the re- world record on my next jump. You got to watch this. Wait, you told somebody? Yeah, I told three people. I told three or four <laughs> people. I told the judge. I said, hey, this next one's going to be the world record, so be ready. And, of course, everybody looked at me like I was crazy. Yeah. But I truly felt that God had, had said, I'm going to get this blessing. There was no doubt in my mind. And at the time, you know, my teammate was running the 800. Mm. And I wanted to cheer her on. So there was no time to really, 
you know, do go through my little routine because I was already guaranteed a world record. So I just stood at the top of the runway and I just started running to beat her uh, because the finish line was at the end of the triple jump pit. So I ran down, I took a hop, a skip, and a jump, and I landed right next to where the world record marker was, and I put my fist up like world record. I Uh ran over, I cheered her through. Unfortunately, she came in second, and I came back, and they said world record. I said, yes, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I've been told. Yeah, I've been told. (laughs) What a blessing. So I felt like that was... uh, I mean, that was a special day for me and, yeah. and uh, just couldn't be beat, you know, just yeah. couldn't be beat. And so many of my uh, competitors came over and they congratulated me on doing, you know, that. And, and you know, again, it was, it was family. It's all about us doing something together. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was mm-hmm. special. One of the things, I, I watched a number of your jumps, just wanted to become familiar and, and one of the things that I respond to with athletes is when they're in their zone and they're happy and mm-hmm. they are competing with absolute joy. Yeah. And I'm telling you, there's so many of your jumps that not only are you interacting, of course, with the, with the crowd, but you are, you just, you're just happy. <laughs> Again, blessings. Well, I, I can't jump unless I'm happy. If I'm sad or something like that, I'm going to get hurt in the triple jump. That's a dangerous event. So I'm always, the first thing that I say, it's, it's crazy. When I would stand up the triple jump, uh, getting ready to, to jump on the runway, I would say to myself something that uh, I think either Richard, I think Richard Pryor used to say this, hope I'm funny. <laughs> and then I would, you know, go through my routine and mm. I would jump. And I loved it because I felt like I was um, a rock star. I would come out, I'll never forget, once I came out of the tunnel in Berlin Stadium, the mm-hmm. Olympic Stadium in Berlin, 60,000 people. You know, this is, this is a track meet. In, in America, you would, it would be like a football game. And I'd come out of the tunnel, people would see me, and immediately there would be this clapping going on, and I would just dance to the clapping. There were times when I would go into the stands, I would grab a few kids, I'd bring them out, and we would just run out and just have fun on the mm. track. For me, it wasn't about competing against each I wasn't trying to box somebody, you know, we had to be you know, scared. For me, it was just about having fun. And if I could go out and have fun, I would jump well, and if I jump well, I was going to win. So that was how I treated every competition mm-hmm. I went into, except in 84, where... They wouldn't let me use my music. They wouldn't let me move outside of a a, a small area. Mm. So I felt trapped, and I didn't mm. feel like I could connect with anybody in the stands because you weren't allowed to. So, you know, just bad times. So the Olymp- my Olympic experience was was great on the one hand because I was there, and hey, I had a good time. But it was it wasn't the ti- it wasn't the Willie Banks type of of competition that I like where I could go and have fun. It was all it wasn't about happy. This no, there was no happiness about jumping there. It yeah. was all about yeah, win this medal. For everybody else, I'm like, you know, well that's not fun. Yeah, hometown kid, pressure, yeah. pressure, pressure. Right? It was I don't think it was so much the pressure as the fact that I I mean music was was a part of my mm-hmm. warm up. Mm-hmm. Being able to interact with the crowd was part of my my psyche. 
And if you take all that away, so I made that mistake. That was on me. Mm. That was not on the officials. That was on me to, to have put myself in a situation where I am uh, tied down by these things that I did. Had I realized that, perhaps I would not have been so uh, encumbered by, by the audience, so, so, so much seeking the the attention of 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 the others and just got into my own self and just did what everybody else yeah. did you know you just you just get into what you're doing and you just do it whereas i was like hey everybody let's go do this you know let's have fun no that's not part of the olympic thing at least that wasn't then yeah it's probably loosened up quite a bit now yeah i'm not i'm not sure um but um well, at least in track and field now, you can actually go and talk to your coach. You couldn't then. Oh, you're kidding. No, you couldn't talk to your coach. You had to stay in one small area, and you could not cross the track. You couldn't go outside of this boxed area. Mm. And it was just so... You know, It was like a prison for me mm-hmm. because I needed to get out. Mm-hmm. I needed to, to expand. And it was all about keeping everything controlled. So now you, I, I think I would have been, I think I would have jumped so much better now because they let music, they, you know, they, they play music. Right. They, you know, the, the, I, they would have actually, I think they could have set it up where when I'm getting ready to go, they got my favorite music on and I'm rolling, man. I, that yeah. would have been like yeah. heaven on earth, right? For me, for a guy like me, for others, they don't like that. But for me, that was what I right. needed to be to be my best and loose and yeah. Um, you uh, you you're talking about eighty four, and uh, once again, you found yourself unfulfilled for, by your performance in eighty four, and you went on to train for eighty eight. Yep. Now, keep in mind, you're an attorney at this point, and um, but um, tell me about that one jump that you did that was even longer than the world record at the 1988 yeah. Olympic trials. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was a, a competition with the greatest, probably the, probably the greatest performances of all times of so many different athletes. The, if you are a triple jump aficionado, you would know that the the worst jump there the the eighth best person in the finals was jumping further than my national record in 1981 the eighth best so this is at the trials this is at the trials oh my gosh <laughs> and i was but i mean i was on the top of my game once yeah. again i was i was just unbelievably in shape and fast and strong so I was jumping uh I was jumping past the world record. I jumped past the world record 3 times. But unfortunately they were all wind aided. And this was at the same competition at the same time mm-hmm. as Flojo ran the world record in the 100, 100 meters. Yeah. I was running about the same time. So I jumped actually uh almost 30 feet. I was like four inches, I think, away from 30 feet. So, you know, 58, uh, 59 feet, eight inches or something like that. Yeah. And um, I was just killing it. And, and, and 
everybody was killing it. We were jumping like no one had ever jumped. And I was fortunate enough to come out on top. So after that, I went back. Well, I went back and I, I slept. I woke up the next day. I couldn't walk. After you did that world best, yeah. the wind-aided world best. Yeah. I couldn't walk. I had stretched my Achilles so badly that both my, I could hardly walk. Do you think it was just that your body was so ready to go that you just pushed it harder than? All of us, when we do world best, world records, we do something no other human has ever done. Mm -hmm. I thought I was in the best shape of my life. And I, and I, to this day, I think, but you know, Achilles had his heel and I had my Achilles. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that was it. You know, I, that was the last time that I jumped well. From then on, it was all about just trying to, just trying to run. I could barely run. Mm. So I didn't wow. do well in the games after I had done so well in the trials. I mean, I was expected to just blow everybody away and I couldn't run. So mm. that pretty much ended my career. I had three surgeries. Oh my gosh. Nothing really worked. From so that one, wasn't... the one sequence of jumps in yeah. 1988. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, but don't get me wrong. You know, again, once again, I still had a fan after, even after I couldn't run, I still enjoyed the fact that I could get out and jump. Yeah. And I jumped, you know, even today I still jump. I still yeah. jump and I just go out and do what I can. I'm 65 years old and I still love jumping. I love that. I love that. You kept the kid in, you kept the kid in you. So in 1988, then because of your injuries, you had your third Olympic experience mm -hmm. where you, you came out of it disappointed. Yeah. It certainly wasn't, wasn't fulfilling your dreams, was it? No. Um, do you think that, that how much do you think these three experiences affected and determined the direction in which you decide to take the rest of your life? Uh, I think it had a lot to do with it. The fact that I think most people who, who get involved with the governance of sport has a gripe, right? <laughs> they, they, oh, yeah. they came out, oh, man, this pissed me off. So I'm going to do this, right? And I started that way, you know, in track and field. I was pissed off at the fact that we had a boycott, yeah. and so I got involved. And my experience, you know, with the Olympic Games was, was not the best, and so I wanted to see what I could do to mm -hmm. change the fact. You know, don't, why can't we talk to our coach? Why can't we run around? Why can't we do what we want? You yeah. know, th these were questions I needed answered. So I got more and more involved. And then the legal, my legal background just led me to do, you know, to, to, to work with other, you know, with other people who were attorneys and, and accountants and things to help athletes, you know, become pros. Mm -hmm. Because that's what th this, this really needs. People need to be able to take care of their training as well as take care of their family. Right. And if they can't do that, how, how is this sport going to last? So I really worked hard on that. And then just now, I think, I, I know this is, this is a little bit long, but I just got to tell you one story. I think what changed my life, it's the weirdest thing, what changed my thoughts and my life was I, I, I had a friend named Tom Mills. You might know mm -hmm. him. Yep. And Tom was the head of the uh, spirit team. And he created all these things. 
And Tom one day said, Willie, why don't we create a Olympian Heroes series of cards? Mm. I was like, okay, what is that? <laughs> and so he explained to me how to do this thing where people, we, would, we would create like baseball cards of Olympians and we wouldn't cut the sheets on some of them. And then they would sign the, the sheets and then we could sell them as, you know, as um, like collectibles, collectibles, memorabilia, whatever. Mm-hmm. I go, okay. So I got behind that. And, but first we had to collect the signatures. And I was like, huh, okay. So I called up these people, you know, I said, hey, hey, Mark Spitz, <laughs> would you do this? Huh, yeah, why not, Willie? Hey, Rafer, will you do that? Oh, hey, yeah, that sounds good. Hey, and I called all these famous you know, top name athletes. Yeah, maybe two said no, but the others said yes. So I have 20 of the most famous American Olympians on this sheet, and they all came and signed. And as they were signing, they told their story. Oh, yeah. And that changed my freaking life. Their stories were amazing. And it went from one to the next to the next. And it was so incredible and so much a part of history that I said, this Olympic thing is more than just sport. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's like creating history. It's like being a part of history. And let me just tell you the one story that really got me. So I'm sitting there watching them sign, and I, I'm not on it, right, because I'm mm-hmm. not that big a deal. So I'm sitting there, and I'm watching them sign, and all of a sudden, you know, people are telling the little stories, and then Mark Spitz goes, so you know what? I'm sitting there in my room. I had just won eight gold medals, and I was like, oh, man, I am going to party. I'm going to have the greatest time here, and all of a sudden, I hear this, bang, bang, at my, my door, and they rush in, they grab me, and they take me, and they put me in this plane, and they send me back to the United States. I'm like, I didn't even get to have fun. And he said, the Black September group had broken in. I'm Jewish. They would have grabbed me oh as being there. Oh, my that. gosh. And I, they needed, the, 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 you know, the, the government needed to get me out of there. And so they took him back to the United States, so he wasn't caught by the black september group and i was like in my mind my mind is blown i'm like that's history i remember that 72 that was amazing bruce then says that's a great story yeah i remember that so i remember i'm sitting in the courtroom my girlfriend is next to me and we're kind of watching her ex-husband's up there talking about you know the glove and all this other stuff. It don't fit. Then it. Just, <laughs> I'm like, we're, we're my talking God, about- we're talking about the old Jesus Simpson trial. That's right. Your girlfriend is this, and that, 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 you know. And my head is is just expanding. I mean, that's history. That is exciting. That is an amazing yeah. thing. And then Rafer says, "Wow, those are some great stories." So I'm walking with my buddy, and he had just gave him the best speech, and we're in L.A., and, you know, we're figuring this is going to be a great night for us, and, you know, Rosie's on one side, and I'm on the other, and we're walking down the, this, uh, this tunnel towards the cars, and bang, bang, bang! 
And, and, and I'm like, what is that? And all of a sudden, my friend Bobby Kennedy drops to the ground. Rosie jumps out and grabs this guy. I'm like wrestling as well, and we're all going crazy, and the FBI, and this, I'm like, oh my God, that's Bobby Kennedy. He was shot by Saran Saran, and this is history. And Rayford says, so I'm at home. My friend Bobby, I don't know if he's going to live or die. Right. And I'm taking off my jacket, and I reach in my pocket, and there's the gun. I forgot I had picked up Sir the Han, gun. Sir Hans. Yes, gun. his gun is in my pocket. I had grabbed it. And I, I call the FBI, and they come over, and I have to, they have to you know, go through the whole <laughs> thing with it. And I'm like, those are three of the most amazing stories of history mm. that nobody knows about that I know now. And that all came from this whole Olympic experience. And I had a chance to sit down with every single one of these amazing athletes and hear these stories. And I said, that is what I want to happen. And that's why I think your podcast and other podcasts like it is what changes the world because people will hear these special stories and they'll go, you know what? I want to be like that. Well, I, I certainly thank you. I'm, I'm definitely trying to spread the positivity and the joy and the power of not just Olympic and Paralympic sports, but also just sports in general and the, um, the ability for sports to transform starting at a very young age, you and I looking at each other, we have very, very parallel stories mm -hmm. where we were, where we were one person before sports and then sports created us into a wholly different person. And, yep. um, it's just a, immense, immense power it to is. affect the world positively. And that's why I think people come together every two years for the winter and summer games. That's correct. That's correct. You, you know, there, there is nothing like it. And, it. and and it doesn't have to be the Olympic Games. It could be anything. I mean, see how many people go to these football games each mm -hmm. each Saturday, each Sunday. Um, people live through athletes. And so I've always thought that, you know, that's an amazing thing. And so we have to take care of that because yeah. people are living through, this, through us. And if we act like jackasses, then we're creating a, a community of jackasses. We have to, we have to respect that fact that we have this talent. It's a gift. Oh yeah. And and that gift we have to show is a, is is for everyone. It's not just for us. Mm -hmm. And that's how I've tried to live my my spirit. And that's why I, again I I still jump because I'm out with with you know I'm in the masters track and field and I'm out with guys who who never reached my level but now they have a chance to kick my butt uh -huh. and I'm happy yeah. I'm like bring it you know because yeah. really it's the challenges I've done this all my life so I'm fighting injuries but I know how to do it yeah they're just getting started they're healthy but they don't know how to do it so which one of those negatives will win this time right so that's how that's the whole point is is Again, community, building this yeah. community, helping others live uh, better. And it teaches you, it teaches you, there's lessons in it that help with life. And that's the oh, whole yeah. point of this podcast is those yeah. invaluable lessons that all of us have learned and that anybody can learn from. That's that, Well, you're doing a great job. Oh, and I, I, I truly appreciate 
whenever you know again you're an olympian you understand and you you you're doing such a great job of helping others understand and uh, much appreciated well thank you well much appreciated for you to share your stories um we were speaking about speaking of um why people come to the olympic and paralympic games and why they go to football games etc et and you are one of two people that i know that actually got to attend the tokyo games uh, yeah. what 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 uh, under the circumstances of the pandemic and all this turmoil that all of us have been enduring for the past year and a half what brought you to tokyo as an official so i was uh nominated by the united states uh usa track and field federation to run for uh, a council position on world athletics which is the Feder the World Federation for Track and Field, mm -hmm. and uh, I fortunately I was I managed to to win a, a seat on the council, and because I'm on the council, we actually run the sport. So I was able to go there. We had our our meetings there, but we also I served as a judge during the track track meets. So um, if there was any controversy. I would be part of mm. a group of, of individuals who, you know, adjudicated the controversy. Right. Now, it was surreal. It was the most surreal experience at a track meet I've ever had. The best athletes in the world running in front of no one, you know. Mm. It was just really a cavern weird. of a place. Yeah. The stadium was gorgeous. Mm. It was amazing. Uh the people, the Japanese people, were amazing. They did a fantastic job. It was well organized. It was clean. It was uh, they they really took great. Uh, they made a great effort to make sure that everyone was safe. And uh, sure, there was a little bit of tension because you know, as an athlete, you you know you don't want anybody telling you what to do. You know because you've got to get into your own world, but. Generally speaking, I think they allowed the athletes to 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 really exercise their their um, uh, their rights mm -hmm. and and uh, do as they needed to do in order to be the best. And you can see that from all of the great performances that came out of of of, of track and field and swimming and mm -hmm. just some awesome performances in front of no one. <laughs> <laughs> So except team members and coaches yeah. and things, those were the only people in the stands. So the uh, the Willie Banks clapping Oof, thing. I would have been toast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been worse than toast. I would have been like, oh, my God, there's no one here. But you know what was cool? They were clapping. It was the teammates. Everybody was clapping. So the whole, like the whole stadium was wow. full of athletes. and Well, not full, but these sections yeah. were of athletes. And they would clap. And in my event, the world record was set by a, a, a woman in, in the triple jump. And uh, she, everybody was standing and clapping for her. And she came down and broke it. It was just amazing. And everyone, you know, from, from sprinters to, to jumpers to throwers were doing some amazing things. And, and, and it was just their teammates that helped them to do that. Wow. Certainly a unique experience watching from my end, but I'm sure actually being <laughs> there. You mentioned 
that you still like to jump. Oh yeah. You started jumping when you were a little kid and it's just in you. It's just yeah. part of you. Yeah. I didn't realize this, but a few days, I believe, before you left for Tokyo, you were in a meet, track and field meet, and you were doing the high jump. I think it was right after I got back. Is it? I, I thought it was posted. Maybe it was before. I, I don't remember. It, yes, it I was, was recently. Second. It was over the summer. Yes, it was. Over the summer, Absolutely. you <laughs> broke the world's world master's record. For 65 for, and older. For the high jump. Yep. Yeah. I, uh, I you know, it's funny because I didn't really know. I didn't know. I was jumping and jumping and jumping. And then I jumped one height and they said, I said I thought it might have been a national record, so I said that might be a national record, and so everybody was trying. We don't know, we don't know. So they measured it, and we did a whole, you know, they went through the whole record setting mm-hmm. deal, and then afterwards, some guy comes up and goes, "You know what? I, I that was a world record." I go, "No, no, no, no that was a national record." He goes, "No, that's a world record." So I went, we went back on to the master's uh, page, uh-huh. and there it was. It was a world. You broke it. I broke a world record. I didn't even know. I, you know, I was like, I didn't even know. But uh, again, I did. I do it for fun. I wasn't really uh-huh. looking for a record. I, I was fifteen pounds overweight. I looked like a big fatty, and I. But I was like, I just wanted to go out there and see what I could do, and. Uh, well, I broke a world record, so that was fun. So 35, 36 years after breaking your first world record, yeah. you're breaking another world record. I mean, you're yeah. still that little boy. I love still it. Still that little boy that loves to jump. Thanks, John. Um, we spoke before, but that you see power, the power of sports to really inspire the world and yep. to, to, change, to change certainly the triple jump. Um, and I have had the pleasure of spending time with you, being in the room with you. And let me tell you, you're the, you're the poster child, not only for track and field and for your event, the triple jump, but for the entire Olympic movement. So for that, I want to show you, tell you how appreciative I, I am of, of Willie Banks and all that you've done for many, many, many years. Well, thank you, John. I, I appreciate that. Coming from someone like you who really understands what, you know, it means to be an Olympian and uh, someone who is actually doing something, you know, in the Olympic movement. I, I thank you. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Well, I appreciate you spending time and opening up your home. My pleasure, buddy. Anytime. You're welcome. Anytime. The quote that Willie has chosen to share with you is from pioneering civil rights leader Martin Luther King. At the height of the civil rights movement in 1965, he said, The time is always right to do what is right. This is John Moffat, and I'm glad you joined us today on this episode of Sports Life Balance. If you enjoyed the show, share it with a friend and leave us your five-star review. Until next week, let's all do what is right. Thanks for listening, kids, to Sports Life Balance. 